And I think just this increased understanding that all teachers have to be language teachers, that it's not just somebody else's job. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. And today we are talking with Dr. Bernadette Massetti about English learners. At Getting Smart, we realize that innovations in teaching and learning are only as good as the number of students they reach and help to create opportunities for. We asked Dr. Musetti to join us to talk about English learners and address how important it is for us to support and understand this population of students, especially if we want to continue to advance and innovate. Dr. Musetti has worked for the last two decades advancing educator understanding of diverse learners and has devoted most of her career to learning about and creating more equity and access in education for students whose primary language is something other than English. Thank you, Bernadette, for being on the podcast today. If you don't mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your background. Well, I'm currently the Director of Liberal Studies at my institution, which is Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. And Liberal Studies is, in California, what they call um, undergraduate elementary teacher prep. So I have all the students that want to be elementary teachers. And I'm also a longtime K-12 teacher. My credentials are in Social Studies and ESL, but I always get asked to teach English literature, so I've taught that in Mexico and the U.S. Gosh, I've been teaching English learners at different levels and different contexts here and abroad since really 1985. I did a master's in TESOL at at what was then called the Monterey Institute, and then I did my Ph.D. at UC Davis in language literacy and culture. Yeah, I've just been working with universities and schools and really trying to connect up universities and schools through partnerships of all different kinds. So given that background, it's clear that you've worked in a lot of different avenues and with probably a lot of different communities. I I know, and some of our audience might know, the research behind the benefits of bilingualism, but from your perspective, what are some of the benefits that might not readily have, or maybe some of those that are, are pretty apparent that you've seen in your work? Well, that I see in my work are definitely the academic benefits. For example, students in dual immersion programs, so students that are actually becoming biliterate, of course have the huge advantage of being bilingual and biliterate, but they also end up usually outscoring the students in the English-only programs by like fifth or sixth grade. They're reading above where fifth and sixth graders in English-only are reading in English, even if they began reading in, in Spanish. You know, it has huge academic benefits. It has a lot of cognitive benefits, too, which we've known about actually for a long time, but we keep finding more more and more out. So, for example, for a long time, we've known about that bilingual brains are more cognitively flexible and can solve problems and identify differences and better executive function in children, which is super important. You know, that's the decision-making. And, and it makes sense that they would also have more language awareness just in general of how language works from being bilingual. But the one I've heard about recently that's really exciting, I think, to most people is it appears that the bilingual brain operating in two languages serves as protection against dementia, which, you know, that's that's of interest to a lot of people. So that's just a huge cognitive benefit. And there are others, but those are those are some of the main ones. And then, of course, what I see is a lot of social and cultural benefits. Bilingual kids usually have better social interaction skills. And importantly, it preserves family and cultural relationships. And I think what's so important that I think gets overlooked is it promotes positive identity development, which is just a huge factor in schooling outcomes for language minority students. And I think the one most people know about are, the, you know, that there are these economic benefits. 
employers are looking for fully bilingual, biliterate employees and, and often have trouble finding them, especially in states with big bilingual populations like Florida and California. That makes you so much more competitive. That cultural competence, not even, you know, being bilingual, but the ability to truly interact socially with understanding of the other culture. And I like what you just said, too, not just with others outside of your family, but then even within your own family and that sense of pride for who you are and, and where you come from and, and what culture you bring to the world. That's, yeah, that's often right, that's out of the conversation. Yeah, and it, it actually is a huge factor. And, you know, when that's not acknowledged, when students are in school and their identities, their cultures, their languages are not honored, you know, th- that's a huge push-out factor for students. So it's often not that students can't speak English. They can speak English. It's what they call subtractive schooling, where I'm not going to engage in a system that isn't honoring me, right? So I'm not going to strive to be successful in a system that doesn't appear to have my best interests at heart. This is actually one of the reasons why I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today, because you have spent a lot of time with language programs, but also specifically with English learners, and you've devoted a lot of your career to learning about how we can create more equity and access in education for these students whose primary language is not English. So I'd love right. if you could talk more about that group of students, sure. maybe give an overview of who they are, and then kind of a, a status. Where are we right now in serving right. those students and serving them well? Right. English listeners are students whose primary language is not English and are not proficient in English. And it's just a hugely diverse group of students, economically diverse, linguistically, culturally, geographically. And it might include students who are newcomers, meaning they recently arrived to the country and might have interrupted formal schooling, so it could be many years behind in their schooling. Or it could be a student who's recently arrived who has very strong primary language skills and might have been in a school system or a country where, you know, they actually are much more rigorous than we are here and might be way ahead of the game in, in what they know in terms of content. So that, that student with the strong primary language skills is at a huge advantage because what we know is those skills transfer. There's also the long-term English learners, so students who have been in ESL basically the entire time they've been in school, maybe six or more years. And then there's everybody in between, including the reclassified students. So the students who were in ESL and then learned English to the point where they were reclassified and are no longer in ESL might be in a monitored program watching how they're doing. And sometimes students you know, have language loss, they they sort of slide backwards and, and end up in ESL again. It's just every possible variation of language, culture, geography, economic status, and it constitutes about 5 million students in the country, which is about 10% of the K-12 population. And California alone has almost a million and a half English learners. And California is one of six states that put together has about two-thirds of all of the English learners in the country. So they're really concentrated in certain areas. But of course, English learners are are in every state. And will be 25% of the K-12 population by 2025 and 40% of the K-12 population by 2030. So they're this really fast, actually the fastest growing segment of K-12, but they're also the lowest performing group of students. The, The achievement gap widens as the students progress through the school years. So Those two things together, the fastest growing population and the lowest performing, that constitutes a real problem for us as a country where we have to do better. One of the misconceptions or the myths that 
I hear and that you've probably heard a lot of is people thinking that they're not as able or capable to access the same levels of academic achievement or growth as other students, which we know is not the truth and is a real detrimental myth or misconception to this group of students who often are just some of the most eager students and just, you know, need the right environment, settings, language, supports in in order to reach that potential. So I don't know if you had, there's other myths or misconceptions. Yeah, lots of myths. But, you know, related to what you were saying before I talk about the myths, I should say that another feature of, you know, if we're taking a snapshot of English learners across the country is that they're in they're concentrated in highly segregated, low-income schools with often unprepared teachers. And as you said, they actually can reach the highest levels of all types of literacy but need the best teachers. These myths, these misconceptions about English learners sort of feed into this perpetual underachievement. One of the big myths is that English learners are immigrants, which is not true at both elementary and secondary. The majority are U.S. born. That's something that most people find very surprising. And they also think that for kids, it's easy to learn a language. Actually, to, to develop academic language takes a long time, and it's hard. Anybody who's tried to do it knows that. It takes five to seven years to develop academic language in English for students who aren't English learners. Related to that is this idea that English is English, that all English is the same. So if the student can converse on, say, the playground, they can also read a social studies text or, you know, answer comprehension questions or something like that. And actually what we know is that the two types of proficiency, the conversational and the academic, are very different. And Mm -hmm. the academic takes a long time. So if teachers don't understand that, they think students just aren't trying or are faking it or can't be bothered. I was going to say, in my classroom, I had a high percentage of English learners, and I remember the ESL teacher I was working with, I taught a lot of science, and I remember she said there's a difference between CALPs and, is it BICs, or what the two, you know, the academic social language. But Emily, she said, you speak enough Spanish. She said, ask them what you're trying to have them do on that science assessment. Ask them in Spanish or put a recorder in front of them so that they can tell you in Spanish and then compare that with what you get in your, on your English written assessment. She said, are you really trying to understand conceptually what they know in science or are you, are you basically an English test of science vocabulary that is challenging for anyone? And when I did that right. and took the time to record and listen to them speak in Spanish, they knew the vocabulary. They knew the concept. But I was giving them a written test in English on the science concept and was doing a total disservice to what that academic language they actually did know, <laughs> you know? Right. And actually, that's a great example because science is the perfect vehicle to learn English. Science is just innately interesting to students, right? Science is life. It can be very hands-on. So it's just the perfect vehicle. We say it's a spring, it can be a great springboard. And yeah, that you're right. Students know so much if we would leverage what they know in their primary language, if we would have this asset-based approach or know that they know this in their primary language. It, it also links to another myth about what is basic to teaching English learners. And sure, they need to know some basic English, but you were not spending years just teaching them phonics and things like that. You were teaching them content, which is, of course, what we need to do. Actually, they need the most engaging, most interesting curriculum possible and the best teachers. 
Have you seen yeah. programs or innovations or school examples that are really moving us forward and doing some of the, you know, dispelling some of these myths and really creating the most engaging environments for students? The second part of the question is describe the characteristics of said programs. Well, gosh, I'm glad you asked that because it gives me a chance to talk about something that I love, which is the biggest, I've been, I've seen a lot of different innovations in education and there are fabulous teachers all over the country doing fantastic things in the, in the classroom with all learners, including bilingual students and English learners. But the one that I was personally involved with that I think is a great example that combines all of these key characteristics is a program that we did called Steps to College. And we had high school ESOL students from a big urban high school in Atlanta, and they were earning school credit. And we only had them for the month of July. So we did this summer program, which was intended to promote a college-going mentality, thus Steps to College, an interest in science and to develop academic language. Since we only had them for 19 days, we did a thematic curriculum around water. Water is life. We took them all over to water treatment plants and fish hatcheries and the aquarium and the lake and did science labs and analyzed water samples and all of that. And we also did a college fair where they learned all about how to get to and pay for college, all of these campus visits of colleges of different types. They each produced a piece of academic work that they were proud of that reflected this theme. So they were at different levels. So that might have been a poster, a brochure, the full-blown research report, depending on their level. And it was very cool because they presented these at a final ceremony with VIPs and stuff and talked about what they learned. And this was pre-Common Core, but we were doing Common Core stuff. So we were doing functional language, like analyzing things and writing about causes and effects of drought and how the aquarium filters water for the beluga tanks and how cactus works to filter water, things like that but focusing on all different kinds of language. So academic language, there's an academic word of the day like hydrology or chemiluminescence, and then colloquial language, like it's water under the bridge because, of course, students don't know those expressions. And then an inspirational and educational quote of the day, like the first day I think it was Nelson Mandela's education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. What was just amazing about this program was that the students realized they weren't on a college track. They realized that Yes, they did have this aspiration to go to college now that they knew all about it, but they weren't going to get there with the courses they were taking. So unbeknownst mm -hmm. to us, the organizers, they contacted the vice principal, and 30 of 55 of them moved themselves up into honors and AP classes on their own. <laughs> oh, my goodness. He just happened to email us one day and say, wow, these kids have really changed. What's going on, you know? And then the other thing they did that just blew my mind and that we didn't know about was they went back to school in August and on their own started a club to tutor each other in these advanced classes that they're now in. They felt like what they had learned was like this key insider information about how to go to college and pay for it. So they started this club called Flow, and I was like, well, that's cool. They kept with the water theme. But then I found out, no, Flow stood for future leaders of the world. These kids in 19 days had come to see themselves as future leaders of the world, and leadership wasn't even one of our goals. That wasn't even an explicit goal. It's just that the teachers were so good at their jobs, meaning they knew the content and the pedagogy, that mm -hmm. together, and those are some of those key characteristics you're asking about, right, like highly, highly qualified teachers who have high expectations, but also build in all of this support and contextualization so that it's comprehensible, along with the super positive identity development, mentoring. They also had mentors, a lot of modeling, collaboration, meaningful choices. It wasn't set up as competitive. It was set up as collaborative, right? So they were there to help mm -hmm. each other, not work against each other. And, of course, I mean, it, it would be unfair to not mention adequate funding, 
time and institutional support because those were key to the success of that program and the success of the students. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, and today we're talking about English learners with Dr. Bernadette Musetti. If you are enjoying this podcast, be sure to check out Season 2, Episode 50 on Competency-Based Blended Language Learning. This podcast is part of a series sponsored by Rosetta Stone. The Rosetta Stone Language Learning Suite for K-12 provides flexible e-learning solutions that are easily integrated with the teacher's in-class instruction. For more, visit rosettastone.com and follow them on Twitter at rosettastoneed. Back to Emily and Bernadette, where they continue to talk about characteristics of programs that are making a real difference for English learners. It sounds like it also, as you mentioned before, was very asset-based in Santa Ana, where there's a school that's, you know, 90% English learners. The Latino Film Institute goes and helps, and the students in the fourth grade produce films. They're directors, they're producers, they are the actors, they do all of it. And you walk into that classroom, and those kids are just thriving, but it's totally building off of their assets and their strengths. It's not a deficit model. I wonder if you would include asset or strengths-based approach to teaching as one of the characteristics. Absolutely. I don't think it is. I know it's absolutely key, and so are relationships, right? That's related to it. I was thinking of a teacher, a first-grade teacher, who in 1998, California passed English-only legislation, at which Mm -hmm. they just passed another proposition undoing that 20 years later on this last ballot. But she was told that very first year, just focus on math and reading. You know, don't bother to teach the kids science or anything else. And she said, well, if I don't teach them science and I'm their only teacher, Mm-hmm. She said, you know, I don't have that deficit view of the students. I was an ESL student. You know, I was an immigrant mm-hmm. student. So, yeah, I think it's honestly why we see the sort of underachievement that we see is it's this whole deficit approach to the education of English learners, which is very different from our approach to, you know, foreign language learners, let's say. Bernadette then shares what she does to help teachers as they learn how to work with diverse learners. One thing she doesn't mention is that she takes groups of students on trips to different countries to learn about other cultures and communities. She also teaches students more about culturally responsive approaches. You work directly with pre-service teachers, and it sounds like also some practicing teachers or or in-service teachers. What are some of the things that teachers can do to leverage those assets of emerging bilingual students? And, and bring that culture and, and include families in their schools. I just did a very cool unit using multicultural literature. And, you know, multicultural literature is just such a great springboard to talk about so many issues, but also to study language and the nuances of language. And, for example, the piece I'm thinking about included a lot of Spanish in the text. It's a text in English, but it included a lot of Spanish. So, you know, students were looking at, well, what are some things that you can do in Spanish that you can't do in English, you know, like intensifiers and diminutives and, you know, we we talked about the themes of all different ways to be rich and and that rich doesn't have to do with necessarily money. It has to do with values and the love of family. And then we did all this language study with words and phrases and sayings and similes and metaphor and genre study about paying homage to somebody because that's what the piece was about, paying homage to a woman in the neighborhood. I think that you can really do everything that the Common Core is asking us to do, but do it in ways that are really engaging and relevant to the students. Those are some of the other key characteristics, right? It has to be relevant to the Mm -hmm. students. But, yeah, I mean, even things like at the language level, just including what students know in their spoken repertoire to build academic Mm -hmm. language. 
you know, an easy thing is I teach teachers is the tiered language, which is if, a, you know, you can always bring up if, if students are using everyday language, which is, of course, what they would learn if, uh, use until we teach them the academic language. You know, then just ask, well, what is, you know, what is the academic word for that? And then build from there. Most teachers are white, middle class, monolingual, suburban, and they just lack experience of people that didn't grow up like they did. And that's not who they see in their classroom, right? So they just need experiences, and people have studied this for decades. How do we, what are the best approaches to actually teach students, to teach teacher preparation students about mm-hmm. the students and their reality and to, to sort of outgrow or change this mindset if it exists of a, of a deficit? I studied a, a group of primarily white female teachers at the university that I was at and tried to understand exactly what you just said. How can you better prepare mm. them to work in the culturally rich and diverse classrooms that they will go on to teach in? And, and one of the things that I explored was putting, having them be the cultural other. So putting them in situations and learning to teach where they just really were the cultural other and what that mm-hmm. what impact that had and many of those experiences were where they were abroad truly immersed in different cultures and it was incredible what even you know four weeks time did for their perceptions their dispositions and their attitudes right so just incredible. them reflecting like I had a teacher who just in a couple of weeks had written in her journal you know we'd write back and forth to each other right so she would reflect mm-hmm. and write and I would reply. And just in a couple of weeks, she had written, I now see that I'm, I, my racist and classless tendencies, you know, stuff like yeah. that, just flat out saying it because she saw it in herself. But I think also showing them examples of, of what, you know, inclusive schools look like is very helpful. Like, I remember I had a colleague in the doctoral program who was doing a huge funds of knowledge project with, at her school with me and parents around science and this whole garden project. And the parents who didn't speak English, the me and parents were the cultural, they were the experts, they were the content experts. And then they used cultural brokers and, you know, everybody was involved in schooling. And I've seen the same with Hmong students doing oral histories. The first thing I do if I go into a school district is we talk about what are the different ways that you really get to know your students. Being in this field and studying and being involved in this work for over the last, uh, you know, three decades, what's changed? And what do you hope to see in the future for not just this population of students, but promoting bilingual education at large? Yeah, I mean, a lot has changed, and and it it is encouraging. You know, when we look at the staff, it's discouraging, but I'm an optimist, so I'm always, I think to be an educator, it helps a lot to be an optimist. But, yeah, so much has changed. I mean, really, we now have these standards where English language learning standards, which we didn't used to have. So, in other words, English learners are held to the same content standards, right, for this focus on the career and post-secondary readiness and, and the literacies across the content areas. So that's huge that the English language standards exist and that they're aligned to the content standards. That's one huge thing that has changed. Another thing is that we recognize this issue of long-term English learners and how so many of the students are just in ESL, you know, for basically their entire schooling career or most of it, and that we're addressing that. And then from an asset-based approach, the seal of biliteracy, a lot of states now have a seal of biliteracy that students can earn, and it's on their diploma, and it marks them as, you know, fully biliterate, which is fantastic. 
I know Oregon and Washington, I think, are really working on that to really up those numbers of students. And when I first came into the field, there weren't great materials. And now there's so many great materials. And there's also all this research and development. In teacher preparation, you know, what we're asking for teachers to know continues to intensify, which it definitely needs to. But we now have things that we need to have, like protocols for what a good sheltered instruction lesson would look like, fantastic newcomer programs all over. And like I said before, you know, the, it looks like the pendulum has swung back in favor of bilingual ed. And I think just this increased understanding that all teachers have to be language teachers, that it's not just somebody else's job. Other things that we didn't used to be so aware of are that we have to differentiate for students, but also that there's different types of language. So there's the language of math, the language of science, and that we're focusing now on formative, not just summative assessments, because, of course, formative is where the learning is, right? And then this idea of these different proficiency levels and what students can do at these different levels, that's new. In other words, as a field, we're becoming much more sophisticated. And then, of course, technologies. I think the technology will really develop quickly, and we'll learn to do blended learning in a way that really benefits students through differentiation and personalizing instruction and you know, we could be doing all kinds of cool global learning networks and gaming and authentic problem and project-based work. I think in the field of language, it's a really great area to look to just because great language teachers and teachers who work with English learners know that at the end of the school year, (laughs) you can't just measure a student by whether or not they pass the test. Those teachers for the longest time, have been looking at what skills the students know, what proficiencies they already have, and, again, coming back to this asset base and competencies. And I think that that's trickling into other subjects and other content areas, and so we could stand a lot to learn from language. And in terms of differentiation, too, right? So language teachers or teachers that are really great at working with English learners, they scaffold and differentiate for readiness, the products, all of that, all day long. Exactly, especially because they know how to develop language objectives, you know, to to actually meet the content objectives. So that's another huge area of of progress and sophistication. In order to create equity in terms of learning experiences and environments for these students, we have to listen. We have to listen to the people we're working with, the, the students we're serving, and the families that we intend to help. I've seen that happen, too, where we're not really listening to the right people. And I'm optimistic that if we do, that we'll just we'll progress even and more quickly and really create equitable environments where each of those students are getting what they need. Oh, I absolutely agree. And, and I'm glad that you mentioned that because you're right. We rarely ask the students themselves or the parents. I just did a study where I interviewed the students and I interviewed the parents about a lot of things, but also what services they wish were offered or what what they want from mm. school. And it was, you know, it was fascinating. And this is in a school that's pretty responsive to parents and kids. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's an important point that we rarely ask the students or the parents. Is there anything else that you want to share with our audience? Just to consider going into teaching. <laughs> If you haven't ever thought about that, um, there's going to be a huge teacher shortage. And, you know, we just need, as a nation, we just need this huge commitment of every type. We need the dispositions, but we also need the funding. We need the, we need people to, to go into the field. So 
Yeah, I mean, just that, you know, teachings. I feel like the most important job out there. And so to just to think about doing that. I, I'm right there with you. We have to encourage more to go into the field because it's incredible what a great teacher can do for a student. Thanks to Bernadette for speaking with us today and to Emily Liebtag for producing and to Kyle Bishop for mixing support. Be sure to check out the Getting Smart podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, subscribe and rate us. For more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog as well at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Megan. And Eric. Signing off.